Well, we welcome you to the beginning of this study on the Epistle to the Hebrews. And I'd like to invite you to bow with me in a word of prayer as we begin. Father, we rejoice in the opportunity to penetrate into your word, which is to penetrate into your own mind and self-disclosure that you may have made of yourself to us as your children. Supremely in Christ, who has communicated your grace to us in a wonderful way, and by the Holy Spirit, which has brought us near unto your throne of grace. As we look at the inspired author, Epistle of the Hebrews, we ask that you will help us not only to be edified, but to be stimulated, to be drawn more deeply into the riches, old and new, of this wonderful word of life. We ask these things humbly for Jesus' sake. Amen. This is a service provided by the seminary. There is no charge for the lectures. We want you to uh, feel free to come as you're able and to take advantage of what we are offering. Uh, Tonight, uh, I'm not... Uh, wanting to be guilty of false advertising, we are actually going to look at the text of the Epistle of Hebrews that we may not get very far in that this evening. As you can see from your handout, I'm going to deal with what would be called introductory uh, methods or introductory issues, background to the Epistle, uh, because I believe it's important for us to think through these issues And uh, if uh, we don't, then we won't follow the current discussion of the epistle, uh, not only in the academy, but in the church and in the mind and heart of the people of God. So this evening, we embark upon opening the pages of one of the most extraordinary pieces of literature in the Christian repertoire. It may even be said that this is one of the most impressive pieces of literature in the history of human composition. The accolades for the author of Hebrews and his work pour in from patristic and medieval observers, from Reformation and post-Reformation readers, from liberal and conservative commentators alike. All are overawed by the writer's skill, his literary style, his penetration of the Old Testament, his singular devotion to and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as the final disclosure of God, the final disclosure of God and heaven to men, women, and children. From the magnificent exordium at the inception of chapter 1 to the longest benediction in the New Testament at the conclusion of chapter 13. From the hosts of angels, myriad in number, to the seed of Abraham, innumerable as the stars of heaven. From Abel and his blood to the blood of Jesus, which speaks better things, From Melchizedek, king in Salem, to Jesus, prince of peace. The language, the images, the personalities, the theology, indeed the biblical theology of this book stirs our minds and warms our hearts 
in profound directions, inviting us, beckoning us into the mind of God, the arena of heaven, seating us at the right hand of glory, indulging us with the inheritance of the age to come, and arousing our emotions, our affections, our sensations for the Lord our God. If we hesitate, balking ever so slightly at the embarrassment of riches in these pages, it is because our believing souls are suffused with the length and breadth and height and depth of the mind and of the heart and of the being of God in Jesus Christ, his son, through partaking of the Holy Spirit. It is to the triune Godhead that we are drawn, captivated by the sublime being of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, approaching, indeed entering in to their glorious dwelling place. It is to the city of the living God that Hebrews summons us, assembles us, convenes us, in a realm visible only to the eye of faith. Sublime invisibility, sublime reality, sublime shadows, visible shadows of invisible, sublime reality. Janus-like shadows, reality, Visibility, invisibility, the reality veiled, hidden, save to the heart of faith. Hebrews draws out our faith from shallow milk to profound solid food, the sublime, the magnificent self-disclosure of the mind, of the heart, of the being of God and the magnificent and sublime disclosure of the heavenly city in which he dwells. Let's begin to penetrate this striking work by examining the title to the Hebrews. The oldest extant manuscript of the Greek text of the epistle to Hebrews is P46, a papyrus manuscript discovered in Egypt in 1931. It was discovered in a Coptic graveyard and eventually sold to Mr. Chester Beatty. Thus, it became part of the so-called famous Chester Beatty Manuscript Collection, housed now at the University of Michigan in the United States and in Dublin, Ireland in the UK. P46 contains virtually all the Greek text of Hebrews, except for three verses, chapter 9, verse 17, chapter 10, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 31. I draw your attention to your handout packet and to the backmost three pages, 
which contain three views of the opening chapter of Hebrews as it is found in P46. You will notice, first, a full photo of the entire first page of the manuscript. Second, you will notice an enlarged photo of that page featuring the title or superscription of the book at the top of the photo. And third, you will notice a modern transcription of that page beginning at the bottom of the left-hand sheet of that, uh, that page that is in front of you. Now, the word superscription, which I have used in your handout outline as well, comes from the Latin combination superscribo, which means written above or that which is written above. And as you can see, this title, which is blown up on the second page of your handout, this title is above the main body of the epistle. I have translate, I have transliterated that title into uh, Western characters <coughs> so that you can at least see it in a language which looks familiar to you, though I have given you the capitalization of it in Greek <coughs> as it is in that uh, photograph from the uh, manuscript itself and a translation of that phrase, which is to the Hebrews, the Greek there, pros, Hebraeus, how you would pronounce that, to the Hebrews. All right, so we have a manuscript, the oldest extant manuscript of the Epistle of the Hebrews, with the title on top of the opening page. And our question is, was this title, to the Hebrews, placed on the work by the author himself? That is, do we have a titular autographer in P46? Now, an autographer is that which has been written by the author himself. So we're raising the question. Since we have this oldest Greek manuscript of the epistle, is the title which the manuscript contains from the author of the epistle himself? Most scholars say no. And I agree with that assessment. And they point out that they say no because like other New Testament titles, which are uh, attached to the the, uh, work in question, the superscriptions are later editions. Why do they say this? Because the recipients of New Testament letters are specifically Uh, indicated generally in the opening salutation or greeting of the letters. In order to see that, if you have your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 1, turn back uh, one book to the opening of Philemon, and you'll notice an example of what I've just indicated from the pen of the Apostle Paul. As you read the first verse of Philemon, Paul to Philemon, there is the address or the title of the epistle in the salutation. Now, if you would turn uh, forward from Hebrews past James to 1 Peter, you'll find the same kind of pattern. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, to those scattered aliens in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, etc. 
So the uh, direction or the title, that is, to whom the letter is written, is contained in the salutation. Hebrews contains no opening salutation. Thus, a copyist likely added the title to P46 or copied what a previous copyist had supplied. At least that is the generally accepted scholarly consensus. In other words, how did the title get there in P46? Most scholars think it was because a copyist who was copying the epistle into the manuscript, into the papyrus roll, a copyist added it above the first chapter. Now, I'm not going to disagree dogmatically with that scholarly assessment, but I want to suggest that this is an argument from silence, and I will grant that P46 is not an autographer. That is, what we have in the manuscript is not the original writing by the author of the epistle himself. And yet, and yet, though P46 may not be an autographer, it may be a copy of an autographer. Thus, the title may have originated with the author, or the title may be a later scribe's theological commentary on the contents of the epistle. I'm not doubting that it is conceivable that the author did put the title upon it and it was copied by this copyist. <clears throat> That's an argument from silence to say that the copyist added it, and I admit that. However, there is greater strength in the argument that a copyist did add it than that the author himself did. And I'll try to unpack a little bit of that in detail a little bit later. But there is another possibility here. If a scribe did add the title, the P46, was he adding a title that he thought was indicative of the theological character of the epistle that he had copied? Stick with me on that one. I want to elaborate on that possibility. So, P46 is the oldest extant copy of the New Testament Greek text of Hebrews. Now, the $64,000 question, how old is it? The majority view is 200 A.D. But one scholar, and no mean text critic in his own right, Philip Comfort, argues for a date around 150 A.D., Either opinion, either 150 or 200 A.D., places P46 in the second half of the second century A.D. All right, now your wheels begin to turn, particularly if you're a student of the early church. Second half, second century A.D., what period of time is that? That's the era of Irenaeus of Lyon, who dies in 200 A.D., and Melito of Sardis, who dies in 190 A.D. And there is a profound biblical theological richness in the writing of these two great Christians. Irenaeus, renowned for his redemptive historical recapitulation of the Adam motif, that is, first and second Adam. 
And Melito is renowned for his redemptive historical recapitulation of the Passover and Exodus motifs found in his wonderful, and I mean wonderful, Paschal or Passover homily, an excerpt from which Professor Scott Sanborn featured in the June Hour Story of Northwest Theological Seminary. The entire fascinating sermon is available in English translation at krux.com. It is a wonderful piece of Christian devotion as well as a sermon. I highly recommend it to you. Every student in this seminary must read it to graduate. The other fascinating sermon, there is another text available. If you're interested in Irenaeus or Irenaeus, the redemptive historical or biblical theological approach to the Adamic motif and other things, you can see my article, which is cited there in your handout at that website. Those are free downloads. There's no charge for uh, you uh, taking them off the web and reading them. So the title to the Hebrews as a biblical theological reflection or biblical theological commentary on the contents of Hebrews may be consistent with the rich biblical theology of the second half of the first century A.D., a richness found in Irenaeus and Melito of Sardis. Perhaps, but it places the manuscript in a context which adds another dimension to the title. Finally, notice the title does not say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. That title, which appears in some Bibles, is certainly a later edition arising from the tradition in Western Christendom that Paul was the author of Hebrews. Now, one explanation for assigning the work to the great apostle to the Gentiles is the fact that in P46, that is, Hebrews in P46, follows Romans and precedes 1 Corinthians. Having been placed between two of Paul's epistles, gave support to regarding Paul as the author. We will explore this question of Pauline authorship later, but I want you to note that in this oldest manuscript in which Hebrews appears, it is placed in the role, in the papyrus role, between Romans and 1 Corinthians. And therefore, there is some plausibility for the Pauline authorship of the epistle. Whether that plausibility is convincing is another matter, but there is some plausibility even in terms of the canonical placement of the epistle in P46. Now, I'm going to approach the epistle in a rather different style, uh, which is one of the reasons that I'm not going to begin this evening with the text itself, I'm going to continue to fill in these background uh, 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 context or background matters because I am giving an apologia pro pro, uh, uh, vita sua. I'm giving you an apology for the way I've lived with this epistle for the last six months. And that is that the epistle to the Hebrews is a narrative epistle. 
The epistle to the Hebrews is a narrative epistle. This is my thesis, which I am approaching the epistle, and I will tell you uh, flat out right now there is no other commentary in print nor anybody else that I know of who has ever approached the epistle this way, which does not mean that I am right and they are wrong, but I am taking, shall I say, a rather unique approach to this wonderful epistle, an approach which is anchored in my series of preaching through the book over 30 years ago in the pastorate that I had in Western Pennsylvania, and I have not deviated from that motif, though I have been uh, <coughs> confirmed in it as, the, as I worked over the Greek text and the theology of the epistle the last six months. All right, what is the narrative? <clears throat> the narrative of the epistle to the Hebrews reveals the story of a journey. A journey or pilgrimage of the eschatological Hebrew for the semi-eschatological Hebrews. Or, to rephrase my paradigm, the epistle to the Hebrews is the narrative of the eschatological pilgrim for the semi-eschatological pilgrims. These Hebrews of the end of the age, these pilgrims of the age to come, these pilgrims who are sojourning, which sojourning in the age to come, marking the age of the end. They are mirrored in the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the pilgrim of the pilgrims, the sojourner of the sojourners. It is this sojourner, this pilgrim. This eschatological Hebrew who mirrors himself in the journeying pilgrims of the former age, that former age of longing, yearning, believing, possessing the end of the sojourn, the end of the pilgrimage, the end even in its beginnings. It is those former pilgrims of the former age from Abel to Abraham, from Enoch to Samuel, from Moses to David, from Jacob to the prophets, from Joseph to the incarnation. Listen to their confession. Listen to the confession of the pilgrims of the former age. I am a stranger upon the earth, O Lord. Psalm 119, verse 19. I am a stranger with thee, O Lord, a sojourner like all my fathers. Psalm 39, verse 12, which is almost a verbatim echo of Abraham's confession in Genesis 23, verse 4. And finally, we are sojourners before thee, O Lord, as all our fathers were, First Chronicles 29, verse 15. These are the pilgrims of faith of the former era who by faith obtained the end of their pilgrimage in a heavenly city. The narrative of their pilgrimage is a sojourn of faith in God their Lord, whether east of Eden, sacrificing in hope of a final sojourner, serpent, crusher, dragon, slayer. 
The narrative of their pilgrimage is a sojourn of faith in God, their Lord, whether atop Mount Moriah, knife raised over the pilgrim son, the sojourning child, the lad upon whom the promises of death for the pilgrims of that age are life, resurrection life. The narrative of their pilgrimage is a sojourn of faith in God, their Lord, whether huddled in hope beneath the canopy of the angel of death, laying hold of the sprinkling of blood and embarking on a sojourn of freedom for pilgrims under the blood of a lamb. Exodus pilgrims, sojourners from bondage to liberty under a cloud, under a canopy cloud of fire. Narrative of their pilgrimage is a sojourn of faith in God their Lord, whether entering in, drawing nigh to the tent of sojourn, the pilgrim tabernacle, the tent of meaning where pilgrim priest and pilgrim non-priest offer up bulls and goats with sighs and tears and deep groanings, yearning for the end of sojourning, looking for rest at the end of their pilgrimage, looking for the day when pilgrims could enter beyond the veil, beyond the veil, and behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. No more pilgrim steps. No more barriers. Rest. Perfect rest. Seated visio dei before the Holy One Himself. Journeys end. Journeys end at the feet of God. How could it be? That these sojourners of faith, these pilgrims of the former age, could see the end of their journey so confidently and so steadfastly possess that final end, that rest afar off. How could it be? Could it be that they were reflections of the pilgrim of pilgrims, the sojourner of sojourners? the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the one appointed from the foundation of the world to be a pilgrim as they were, to be a sojourner as they were, the one who would incarnate a Hebrew's life, the one who would sojourn in flesh and blood, though he was from all eternity not flesh and blood, but very God of very God the one who would display his blood in Abel's lamb, the one who would reveal that he is son of the Hebrew Abraham, bound over to death by his father, yet raised from death because he is the Hebrew with eternal life. He is the Hebrew with the power of an endless life. The one who would be revealed in the blood of a lamb 
upon the doorposts of his mirror reflection, pilgrims, aliens in a strange land, bond, servant, sojourners of a land of death. This one bearing in his pilgrimage the reproach of their bondage, laying his lifeblood upon their pilgrim hovels so they could travel with this lamb, this Passover lamb, travel with this lamb to the land of milk and honey, travel with this one tabernacling amongst them, accommodating himself to their pilgrim mode, drawing them unto his everlasting self, by pilgrim sacrifices, pilgrim priests, a pilgrim tent of meeting, mirroring himself in priesthood and sacrifice and in tabernacle and in veil. My thesis is that every element of this New Testament epistle is built upon the Hebrews motif, the pilgrim motif, the sojourn motif. Whether it is cast, it is the cast of sojourners in faith in chapter 11, or the doxology of the heavenly Jerusalem in chapter 12, or the proto-benedictory, no lasting city here in chapter 13, all of which are explicit, explicit pilgrimage motifs underscored by our narrator, author, in express pilgrim vocabulary. Or whether it is the narrative of the former Hebrews' sojourn in the wilderness after Exodus from Egypt, a sojourn which dominates chapters 3 and 4 of this epistle and also much of chapter 6. Or whether it is the cult ritual and cult personnel coincident with the era of the wilderness sojourn between Exodus and conquest of Jericho, that is, the tabernacle ritual of sacrifices and offering of blood by the tabernacle personnel from the tribe of Levi, especially the high priest, a co-pilgrim priest on behalf of a pilgrim people ministering at a pilgrim sanctuary tabernacle, a theme which dominates chapters 5, 7, 8, 9, and 10 of this epistle. In other words, the epistle to the New Testament Hebrews is steeped, is loaded, is freighted with the narrative of the Old Testament Hebrews. And since that narrative imagery from the Old Testament era dominates the stories our inspired author relates, since the dominant image, the dominant plot line from the Old Testament narratives he recounts is sojourn, is pilgrimage, then I conclude that an accurate reading of our author's focus is pilgrims, Hebrews old and new, Sojourners of the former times, sojourners of these last times, protological pilgrims, eschatological pilgrims. And the glue that binds these old and new pilgrims together in a common sojourn of faith from this world to the heavenly city of God, the glue is the Hebrew of Hebrews. 
the pilgrim of pilgrims, the eschatological pilgrim himself, who is the Son of God, a son of the Father, as pilgrim and sojourner, is placed at the forefront of this epistle because our author makes him the pioneer and perfecter of every faithful pilgrim's journey. For he is more than Moses. He is more than Levi. He is more than Melchizedek. He is more than Abraham or David or any other pilgrim. He is even more than the angels. He is God. He is God. And God pilgrims among us in the flesh. If he is to bring many pilgrims to glory, he must become flesh and blood as they are. He must incarnate pilgrimage who is the pilgrim's end and goal, whether by faith in the former times or by faith in these last times. Christ Jesus is the pilgrim, the eschatological prototype of all believing pilgrims in the history of redemption. The eschatological pilgrim, completer and perfecter of the history of redemption. The eschatological pilgrim in whom the pilgrimage of the history of redemption is complete. Complete, I say, apox. Apox. Once and for all. And that Greek word is a favorite of the author of the epistle. To the Hebrews. Now I have labeled the epistle to the Hebrews a narrative or narrative epistle. And I have outlined that narrative thesis in my preceding remarks. Now let me attempt to reinforce the thesis with a narrative plot paradigm. All narratives have a plot an unfolding sequence of the narrative drama. The narrative plot of the epistle to the Hebrews revolves around the central character in the narrator's or the author's drama. The writer of this epistle has cast his narrative around the chief character in the history of redemption, Old Testament and New Testament alike. He has constructed his narrative Christocentrically. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the central character to the narrative contained in the pages of these 13 chapters. The narrative story here is his story, Christ's story. And, and it is our story in Christ. Christ Jesus is the eschatological sojourner of the end of the age. He is the pioneer and perfecter, chapter 12, verse 2. The pilgrim in whom all pilgrims of the former age and these last days, Jesus Christ is the pilgrim in whom all pilgrims journey to the eschatological city, to the celestial city, to borrow that happy phrase from the great pilgrimage allegory of John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, but the epistle to the Hebrews is no allegory. 
I care not what those philonic exegetes and commentators say about the fact that this is Alexandrian Platonism. That is bunk. That is absolute nonsense. Because anybody knows that allegory doesn't need history at all. John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress is not an historical narrative. It is an allegoric, a allegorizing of the Christian soldier. And he pointed it out that way, even in his preface, in his little, in his little poem. Allegory doesn't need history, and history is not allegory. So don't come to me with this garbage about the fact that the epistle to the Hebrews is some kind of exercise in Alexandrian allegorism. That is garbage. That is absolute nonsense. That's paganism. This is not allegory. This is concrete, objective, incarnational, redemptive history. Yes, Bunyan is allegorical. Spencer is allegorical. Milton is at point allegorical. Allegory has its place in literature. Dante is allegorical. But that is not what we're reading when we're reading the epistle to the Hebrews. So let us not have any of this uninformed because it is uninformed by not being informed by the reading of the text. Let us not have any of this uninformed nonsense about Egyptian allegorism behind the epistle to the Hebrews. You're going to have to find the background to this book somewhere else than in Philo or Hellenistic Judaism or Alexandrian Judaism or some other nonsense where you think you can invent an alternative to interpreting the word of God as the word of God. All right, well, that little discursion... I trust you understand that I don't believe that the Epistle of the Hebrews is allegory. It is the record of a narrative history. Jesus Christ takes up the human condition in history. Spatial vectors, temporal vectors, horizontal vectors. The Son of God, non-spatial, vertical vector, non-temporal vertical vector. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, takes up the human sojourn in history. Jesus Christ, Son of God, vertical vector, takes up human nature horizontal vector in the intersection of the eschatological narrative with the historical narrative. Vertical and the horizontal intersect in the incarnation of the Son of God in time and space history. The temporal and the spatial vectors are crucial to understanding the drama of this epistle. In the background of this writer's conception is the concept of space and time, including an arena where there is neither. Ah, ah, yes, he is remarkably profound. While in the former era, Christ is a spectator of the drama. That is, he watches the cloud of witnesses. In these last days, he is the participator in the drama. He becomes one of the cloud of witnesses, the chief one. For what is narrative identification? What is dramatic identification? This narrative dramatic identification is incarnation. 
pilgrim incarnate, sojourner incarnate, stranger and alien upon the earth incarnate. Yes, vertical and horizontal intersect in incarnation. There's drama. Semi-eschatological narrative drama. And the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is unfolding this marvelous drama on every page of his divinely inspired narrative epistle. So the plot of the epistle to the Hebrews is the journey of God's son from eternity, non-spatial, non-temporal, non-historical, vertical vector, through time, spatial, temporal, historical, horizontal vector, back to eternity. From eternity to time and space, back to eternity. The redemptive historical parabola. The redemptive historical parabola. From eternity, out of time and space, into time and space, back to eternity, out of time and space. That is the redemptive historical paradigm. This narrative drama in the epistle to the Hebrews unfolds from pre-existent eternal life to incarnation, to spatio-temporal life story, to crucifixion, to death, to burial, to resurrection, to post-existent glorification and exaltation, to session at the right hand in eternal life. The narrative life story of Christ here is not a gospel biography. Rather, the narrative story of Christ here is an interface with the biography of Israel, the Hebrews of old. The Old Testament features of the Hebrews narrative are a melding of former times and last times in the one whose story is told in both times. The story of the Son of God, our Savior. Now, your outline, your handout has an outline of this plot. The plot to the story unfolds from pre-existence to glorification through amalgamation and recapitulation. The son of the father appropriates the former history as his own as he replays it, relives it, recapitulates it. He moves in angelic circles, chapter 1, but he is no angel. He moves in angelic circles, first chapter, but he is no angel. That story is muted. He moves lower than the angels, chapter 2, but is more than a man. That story is featured loud and clear. It begins with the entrance of death into that lower than angels realm, chapter 2, verses 9 and 15. And the grace of God in Christ as the counter-narrative or anti-death narrative. The plot narrative includes suffering, chapter 2, verse 10, which the clash with the devil inaugurated, chapter 2, verse 14. It then features the narrative story of the seed of Abraham, chapter 2, verse 16. Although the seed of Adam in Abel, Enoch, Noah, 
and all the seed of faith are included in the drama, chapter 11. And then the story concentrates on the era of Moses and the Exodus, the narrative story, the narrative pilgrim story of Abraham's seed in the time of Moses, chapter 3. And in the Mosaic sojourn, the plot narrative details the consequences of the probation in the wilderness, chapters 3, 4, and 6. In that same wilderness setting, a pilgrimage setting, I remind you, our author turns his plot sequence to the center of the cult of Moses, the cult of Israel in the wilderness era. Our author directs his unfolding plot narrative to the tabernacle and the Aaronic, the Levitical priesthood, chapter 5. But he does this with a retrospective glance a retrospective glance at Melchizedek. Melchizedek who storyboards the eschatological priest, the eschatological king, the eschatological son, Jesus Christ, chapters 5 and 7. It is the priesthood of the Son of God which is prospectively narrated from Melchizedek to Aaron to Levi, a priesthood which annuls and makes obsolete the priesthood of the Abrahamic era, the priesthood of the Mosaic era, the Levitical priesthood of the former Old Testament era, rendered passé, anachronistic, even Judaistic. With the eschatological priest, the once and for all priest, who is the Son of God. All temporal priests are outmoded, unnecessary, archaic. All temporal priests are useless. Claiming the title even makes them Judaistic. Do you get it? Do you get it? He is the last priest. No one bears that title any longer after him. No one. And to claim it is to go backwards in the history of redemption. Backwards. That's what a reformation was for. And not halfway either. In that wilderness era... The covenant itself, an extension of that gracious covenant with Abraham. Indeed, that gracious covenant with Adam and the seed of the woman. A covenant destined to be even more gracious. New in every aspect of its fulfillment in Christ. Better because unbreakable. Written upon the heart. Better because eschatological. A covenant story of a new covenant pilgrim who is the eschatological covenant keeper, perfectly performing the covenant formulary, you will be my people, I will be your God, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. The narrative of the Son of God is that he incarnates the covenant. He is the binding of God and man in one person. There's covenant for you. 
And it is of grace. It is all of grace. It is none of works, nor any merit, nor any worth or deserving. It is all of grace. Because it is all of Christ always. Don't mix oil and water when you're talking about the covenant of grace. At the center of this wilderness drama of sojourn and pilgrimage, the center of the camp of the sojourners, the tabernacle in the wilderness, Hebrews chapter 9. You will observe, if you read the ninth chapter carefully, You will observe that our author's plot diagram makes no mention of the temple. No mention of the temple. The temple is not here. The center of his meeting place is the center of a sojourning people, not the center of a non-sojourning people, a center of a people who have come into their rest a temple resting place. No, not in Hebrews. And so our author relates the protological sanctuary of the pilgrims of the former age to the eschatological sanctuary of the pilgrim of these last days, namely the heavenly sanctuary of which that wilderness tabernacle was a mere copy. Hebrews 9, verse 24. The Jerusalem temple does not fit our author's plot. It does not. Because it does not fit the Hebrews motif, the sojourn, pilgrimage motif. Our author chooses his imagery in concert with his motif, sojourn, pilgrimage, traveling between the times, between the time of redemptive liberation and the time of consummate possession at journey's end, between the times we are pilgrims. And Christ accommodates himself to our pilgrimage and therefore a sojourning motif and a sojourning cult center. And at the center of the tabernacle, central to the camp of the pilgrim people of God, is sacrifice, atoning sacrifice, Hebrews chapter 10. See how he telescopes downward, downward, downward to the central act of Christ. The one final pilgrim whose story is the sacrifice is the one who finally puts an end to sacrifice for pilgrims. And he does so because he is both sacrificial victim and faithful performer. The righteous one who lives by faith. Chapter 10, verse 38. His story is the story of faithful devotion to God even unto death as he performs his duty as a perfect pilgrim in full faith. For his soul is possessed with faith, Hebrews 10, 39. He is the 
eschatological pilgrim believer. And thus, our narrator's plot details the story of faith in believers from the former days, Hebrews chapter 12, chapter 11. But only after faith is defined as an eschatological gift, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. No, faith not defined forensically there, faith defined eschatologically there. So don't start preaching sermons on justification by faith out of Hebrews 11, 1. That's not what he's talking about. Faith is a rich diamond, as rich as any diamond as any of you women have on a wedding band. And you can hold it up to the light and it'll catch all kinds of different glimmers and, and, uh, and, and uh, rays of light, different casts of shadow, different casts of brilliance. It'll cast, it'll, 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 it'll transform a richness that cannot be exhausted by one word, one theme, one aspect. We do not deny the forensic aspect of faith. We do not deny it. It is there. It is in Paul's epistle, but it is not the only rich facet of faith. And that's what Hebrews 11.1 is giving. He's giving you another look at the diamond. And it is not forensic. It is not faith in its forensic aspect. It is faith in its eschatological aspect. The evidence of things not seen. The hope of things not seen. It is that which grasps hold of the invisible. It is not that which unites you to a legal justification. Which is not to say that the writer of Hebrews is denying that. He is simply saying, if I may paraphrase, good for Paul. He exhausted the forensic aspect. Now I'm going to tell you about the eschatological aspect of faith. I'm going to give you another side of this rich diamond. So faith merges the story of the seen, the visible believer, with the story of the unseen, the invisible arena of heaven's glory. What is seen possesses what is unseen by faith. That's what he says there. And every one of those characters in that list in chapter 11 possesses what is unseen by faith. They have it. To take Van Til's famous slogan, they are blessed possessors. Because by faith, they got it. It became a part of their life. It was grafted into their souls as heaven came down and glory filled their hearts. And Christ, who is seen, Christ, who is the incarnation of the pilgrim sojourn. Christ possesses the unseen, possesses heaven's glory because he is the eschatological heir, the eschatological blessed possessor. He is the son of the Lord of that arena. The heir becomes the man of faith par excellence. The one who possesses as eternal possessor the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. All that the former sojourners in faith possessed by faith, he possesses and more. 
because he sojourns in the reality of what they believed on through shadows. And the narrative fruition of faith, his story now becomes the paradigm of our story, our story narrated in the mirror of his story. He is the pioneer and perfecter, chapter 12, verse 2. We are the pioneers who are being perfected, chapter 12, verse 10. Along the pilgrim way, discipline fits us for glory as a father disciplines a son. A father and a son. This eschatological son of his eschatological father is fit for glory by a sojourn in obedience, in shame, in death, in vindication, in glorification, yea, in glorification, and we follow in his train. The narrative of his storied pilgrimage has ended in Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, chapter 12, verse 22. And to that storied narrative, he summons us, sons and daughters. But there is a flip side of this story, the anti-story, the shaking of all things that are not of his unshakable eschatological world. The flip side story, the anti-story, shaking and fire and darkness and the blast of a trumpet, the blast of an eschatological trumpet and a consuming fire. How then shall we live our story as pilgrims, holy and set apart with no continuing city here. Hebrews 13, verse 14. For that pilgrim is holy and set apart, and he had here no continuing city. Our narrative is to join him outside the gate, chapter 13, verse 12. Outside the gate, but inside the city. Where he is. City to which the pilgrim son has gone. Pioneer and perfecter. Where his sojourn has been finished. Consummated before the loving face of his father in heaven. Christ's sojourn is complete. No going back. No failure to perform his pilgrimage. Those in Christ are as secure as he is. Their position complete in his. If he is at the right hand on high, so too are they in him. If he has been perfected, 
so too have they in him been perfected. In him, their salvation is perfected, completed, secured. Those in him can no more lose their salvation than he can lose his exalted position. They can no more lose their end than his end can result in loss. The eschatological pilgrim has come home. The eschatological Hebrew is seated in the heavenly places. And we semi-eschatological Hebrews, we semi-eschatological pilgrims are home in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is the narrative of our story because it is the story of his narrative. And thus, the plot narrative for the epistle to Hebrews, a narrative epistle, an epistle telling a story. Scott, you had your... Oh, I was wondering, uh, since in Hebrews 11, uh, Jephthah and Samson and David are mentioned in the land, and yet they're considered sojourners in that chapter, do you think that the tabernacle in Israel is excluded necessarily, or is it just not as highlighted? Yeah, I mean, uh, he's chosen to emphasize its wilderness situation for theological purposes. He's not ignorant of the fact that the tabernacle did cross over the Jordan and was part of the sanctuary of Israel until the temple was built. Uh, But I think he ignores that. Uh, because he wants to focus upon the prominent sojourn motif which jumps out at you when you look at the tabernacle in terms of its wilderness uh, its wilderness phase. So, once again, I think he's chosen to emphasize particular motifs and themes which are harmonious with the pilgrimage motif that he's trying to emphasize. Not denying that there is a sense of pilgrimage in the promised land, but if you... If you settle them down around the temple, if you settle them down around the land, then it's harder to get them to think of the fact that they're pilgrims and not that they're, in, you know, incarcerated or ensconced in this terra firma of Palestine and Israel belongs to us, the temple belongs to us, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is here. So he's trying to get away from that mentality, which I think is one of the problems in the community that he's writing to. But they are looking back to a political, to a territorial, to a temporal Judaism, which has absolutized the temple, absolutized the land, and forgotten the fact that uh, they were pilgrims and that that was their theological identity. How does that dovetail with the polemical side of things? I mean, here's this apologetic, pastoral apologetic to these people, which is so clearly there, which sometimes the narrative comes to the surface, but it's implicit throughout. So I'm just, what are, do you have any reflections on the interplay between the argument, the rhetoric, and the narrative paradigm? Yes, I, I commend you for observing that. Uh, and you're reading, you know, between the lines yeah. and sensing uh, the drama that is in the background. Uh, and that is a, 
that's a complex question, but nonetheless, you have your finger on something that is going on. The drama includes attention with this community or members of this community which are being drawn back into a form of Judaism, though it is not kind of Galatian heresy Judaism, but it is kind of Judaism which, as Voss points out, is stuck on externals. So I want to uh, I want to look at that when I talk about the audience of the epistle, and uh, I want you to keep struggling with that yourself as you think through the epistle, because you know the, the more we're aware of that, then the more some things in the epistle are going to start to make sense to us, because uh, this motif of the externalism of Israel in the Old Testament in the wilderness era, you see. That externalism, chapter 6, is not enough to be an internal drama of regeneration because they have all these external uh, blessings, external experiences, none of which are saving, which in my opinion is the solution to the difficulty of Hebrews 6, 1 to 6. It's, it's the wilderness and exodus motif and the externalism of that generation that did not enter into God's rest. That's the solution to the problem of interpreting that passage. All right, uh, we'll resume now with a discussion of the author, and you can follow on in your handout with a little more specific and detailed outline. I'm wondering if there is anyone here who has a King James Bible uh, this evening. No, it's not necessary. I'm just wondering if we had any King James-only folks here, bless their hearts, or anyone that still, like myself, reads it devotionally because they love the literary character of it. <laughs> uh, no, all right. Well, then, uh, then uh, I brought my own copy of the Texas Receptus. <clears throat> but I, I wanted to read the title as it appears in the King James Version in order to jumpstart this discussion of authorship. And the title in the authorized version reads, The Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. All right, so... No question that the King James translators believed that Paul, the apostle, had written the epistle to the Hebrews. All right, let's do what we did a little bit ago. Let's turn back to Philemon, the first verse. And I want you to observe something in that first verse of Philemon. And then I want you to turn back to the epistle before Philemon. I want you to turn back to Titus, and I want you to observe the first verse there. And I want to see if you see anything that is... Duplicated. You can see it in your English versions. Makes no difference what English version you have. First word in Philemon is Benji. First word in Titus is Paul. First word in all of the epistles from Titus on back to Romans is Paul. And that is true in the original Greek text. So your English versions, which have translated the first word in all of the epistles of Paul, have Paul in the first verse. Now, do you find that in Hebrews 1, verse 1? No, you do not. As you can see from looking at the text, you do not find Paul 
or Paul to anyone anywhere in that first verse. So the pattern of Paul's epistles is not present in Hebrews. Okay, Paul's 13 epistles begin with Paul. That's the first word that he writes. Hebrews does not begin that way. All right, well, then do you find any author's name in this epistle to the Hebrews? As you look at the opening section, do you find any author's name there? And I see your heads shaking, and that's correct. Well, supposing that you didn't find the author's name at the beginning of the epistle, where else might you look to see if the author had identified himself? At the end, very good, as you would sign off in a letter in the days that you were writing handwritten letters. I trust you still do sign your emails with your name, even though we're in a digital world. But, of course, when you signed off your handwritten letters, you always signed your name at the end. So let's take a look at the end of the Epistle of Hebrews and see if this author gave us his name at the end. And what do we find at the end of chapter 13? Do we find the author identifying themselves here? No, we do not. So neither at the beginning nor at the end do we find an author's name, which means that the epistle to the Hebrews is anonymous. It is an anonymous epistle, or so it would appear. But maybe we can do some detective work. All right, maybe we can actually find out who this author is. And if we're going to do some detective work, how would we do it? What would we work on? We'd work on the epistle itself. We'd start to look inside the epistle. Okay, we don't have any author statement at the beginning. We don't have any author statement at the end. So let's look inside. Yes, Carol? And why do you say that? What inclines you in that direction? Because the way he says, greet all your leaders and all God's people, those from Italy, send your, you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Okay, so you're saying that because he has grace be with you all at the end that... No. No? I'm talking about even, on, I mean, from the start of chapter 24... Read all your leaders and all God's people. Uh huh. Yeah, I see that. So, but you, you say that sounds like Paul. All right. All right. Cheryl's voting for Paul at the end. All right. Now we're going to do our detective work once again by looking inside uh, uh, the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, may have been written by his or her authorship. Now, why do I say his or her? Uh, because there are many scholars who believe that Hebrews was written by Priscilla, wife of Aquila, that was mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, and became involved with Paul in his ministry at Corinth. Now, we'll come back to Acts 18, verse 2 a little later on. But uh, there are, since there are those that believe that a woman wrote the epistle to the Hebrews, how do we settle this question of whether it is a male or a female. How do, how do we settle this gender or sex question of our author? All right, now I want you to all turn to chapter 11, verse 32. Hebrews 11, verse 
And Kay, if you have it, would you read it for us? Hebrews 11.32. Yes, Kay, do you have it? Would you read it? Please. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Thank you very much. Now, that verse answers the question of the gender of the writer of Hebrews. And you looking startled at me, how does that verse answer the question of gender? All right, well, let's begin with a literal translation of the Greek text. Literally, this verse reads, Time will fail me telling or recounting Gideon, Barak, etc., Now, what is or who is the antecedent of telling? The word telling or recounting? The me. The I or the me of the preceding clause. And the I or the me who is telling or recounting is... Is who? He's the author. Not he. We're not going to prejudice it yet. But that is the author. In other words, the author is referring to himself with that antecedent pronoun, me. So, now, what about this word telling? Well, the word telling or recounting is a present participle in the Greek text. Now, a present participle is a verb form ending in ing used as an adjective. In English, the walking dog or the crying baby. Those are Verbal adjectives, I-N-G, present participle, uh, adjectives. So here we have a Greek participle, an I-N-G verb, a present participle. But this Greek participle is in the middle voice. Now, there are three voices in Greek. There's the active, passive, and middle voice. What's the middle voice? What's kind of unique to the Greek language, it's a reflexive voice. It's a voice which points back to the speaker or to the writer himself or herself. So we could make a more literal translation using the reflexive style of this middle Greek participle by saying, time will fail me myself telling of Gideon. And now we come to the pièce de résistance. We come to the fact that Greek participles have gender. They have gender, and the gender tells us the sex of the person telling or recounting. And here, with this participle, our author reveals his gender. He uses the masculine participle when he writes, I myself telling of Gideon. So the myself who is telling, writing this letter, is a male figure. That participle in chapter 11, verse 32, settles the question, in my opinion. But we may reinforce that grammatical demonstration by noting chapter 13, verse 23. A verse just before Cheryl pointed to what she considers a kind of Pauline Uh, expression in verses 24 and 25. 
Ron, do you have that 1323 in front of you? Thank you. Could you read it for us, please? I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. All right. Our author calls Timothy our brother, with whom he hopes to visit his readers soon after Timothy is released. Released from what? From where? From prison. All right, keep your finger in 1323. Turn back to chapter 10, verse 34. Read the first line of 1034. Loretta, do you have it? You sympathize with those in prison. Thank you. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that Timothy is in prison in this particular incident, but he has been in prison, which is the common experience of some in this community. Though Timothy has, in a way, been identified with the same plight with which they have been identified. We'll come back to this notion of the fact that some of the members of this community had been in prison, but Timothy is suffering the same fate, though not necessarily at the very same time. All right, well... Who is Timothy? Identify Timothy for me. Andy, identify Timothy for me. What do you know about Timothy? Companion of Paul. Companion of Paul is exactly what I wanted to hear. You go to the head of the class. Excellent. He's a companion of the Apostle Paul. He is a co-laborer of the Apostle. And he is a recipient of... He receives... Two letters, two epistles from the apostle. All right, now, this author of Hebrews knows Timothy, which means that he is in contact with one of Paul's circle of companions. He is in contact with one of the companions in Paul's circle, one in the apostolic circle, a companion of an apostle. All right, now let's read chapter 2, verse 3. And Bill Wheelinger, do you have it in front of you, chapter 2, verse 3? Yes. Thank you. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. That indicates that the author had heard the gospel of salvation from whom? Pete, from the apostolic circle. Yes, from the apostles. All right, so notice that we've got a line of continuity here. Timothy to uh, those that heard the apostles. Timothy to Paul, who is an apostle, to the apostolic circle in chapter 2, verse 3. So the data strongly suggests male fellowship, male fellowship with Timothy, male fellowship with the apostolic circle, male fellowship with those who first heard from the Lord, namely the male apostles. This is no sexist or chauvinist observation. This is simply an observation of historical fact. We are confirmed in our identification of the male gender from 1132 with his association with the male leadership, the apostolic male leadership of the early church. And therefore, we can say in a double way, QED, the author of Hebrews, was a male. Kristen? Why do they 
as you usually are when you're talking to your father. They dismiss the uh, grammatical point, okay, because they say it's neutral. They're not impressed by the male leadership of the apostolic circle uh, argument. Uh, it's not a recent, it's not a feminist argument. The feminists have re- rehabilitated it. It's been uh, around for a long time. And why? Well, because uh, she's under the authority of her husband, Aquila, and they have come with a great deal of knowledge and uh, education. And Paul kind of hand trains them in Corinth. And consequently, she becomes a, uh, you know, a possible explanation for the authorship of the epistle. Uh, it's... It's an attempt to solve the problem of the enigma of authorship by looking at someone who was in the apostolic circle, though not an apostle herself, obviously. So the grammatical explanation could be neutral? I don't think it can, but they will dismiss it as neutral. They will say it is not, it is not definitive. Oh, no, they've taken Greek. They're pretty, they're pretty sharp people that have taken this position, uh, uh, older and more modern. But uh, nonetheless, I don't think it flies in the face of all the data. Well, if it is not Paul, though the King James translators thought so. And remember, the King James translators are Reformed Calvinistic Puritans. And there are a great many Reformers in the 16th century, original reformers who thought that Paul had written it. And Augustine himself is probably the origin of the notion that Paul had written it. In other words, from the time of Augustine on, it's very, it's, it's accepted in the Western church, in the Latin church, that Paul is the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. Well, Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 3, and let's examine this verse again, asking the question, can this verse support Pauline authorship of the epistle to the Hebrews? Okay, we had this verse read. Let's look at it again and notice that the writer tells us He heard the gospel of salvation from whom? Those who heard the Lord. And the Lord is who here? Christ Jesus himself. Very good. He heard those who heard the Lord speak or proclaim this message. All right, now keeping that in mind, can this be said of Paul? Did Paul hear the gospel at the first, Hebrews 2, 3, at the first, from those who heard the Lord speak. Those who heard the Lord speak being his apostles. Is that how Paul heard the gospel at first? All right, don't answer the question. Let's take a look at the text. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, I want you to look to begin with at verses 11 and 12. 
And Felicia, if you have it, do you mind reading verses 11 and 12 for us? Absolutely. Thank you. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from men, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, skipping down to verse 15. Ben, if you have verse 15, would you read through verse 19 for us, please? But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult this flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. All right, now we want to integrate Galatians 1 and those verses which we have just noted with Hebrews 2, verse 3. We want to notice that the author of the epistle of Hebrews does not appear to be the apostle Paul because the Lord Jesus preaches in Hebrews 2, 3, the disciples or apostles hear him, and the writer of Hebrews hears them. The Lord appears to Paul on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Paul hears him, and Paul does not first hear from the apostles or those who heard Christ himself, as he says in Galatians 1. He didn't even meet some of the apostles until three years later. All right. So Paul places himself outside of the group inside of which the writer of the Hebrews places himself. Paul does not claim to have heard it at first from those who heard the Lord, namely the apostles. He had a direct revelation from Christ himself, not from any apostolic intermediary. Therefore, I think in honesty, on the basis of the internal data of the epistle and Paul's own testimony, we must conclude that Paul did not write the epistle to the Hebrews and we have a snowballing case against Pauline authorship. Now, of course, tomorrow a manuscript may be discovered dating from 80 A.D., which says signed by the Apostle Paul and it has the epistle of the Hebrews above it. And then I'll eat all my words. But there is no such testimony to date. And so on the basis of the existing evidence and the internal testimony, I think we conclude that Paul did not write it and ask the age-old question, if not Paul, then who? And I direct you to the brilliant and profound origin of Alexandria, perhaps the greatest Greek father of the first three centuries, died in 255 A.D. Origen, who was alleged to have written 6,000 books. That is probably a hyperbole, but he did keep seven copying stenographers busy for years as he dictated one book after another. I don't think I could dictate two books in a year. 
And he was dictating seven books at once. <laughs> All right, well, you do the math and you figure out how long it would take you if you're working 24 hours a day. Let's say 16 hours a day, you take eight hours of sleep, and you've got seven stenographers working. How long would it take you to dictate 6,000 works? Well, it, uh, my point is uh, he was a massive church father and brilliant in his own right and had a profound influence upon Orthodox Christianity from the third century on. Here is what he says. Quote, Who it is that really wrote the epistle, God only knows. Unquote. I like that. I like that. That is reverent agnosticism. (laughs) Kristen, you had your hand up. I don't want to ignore my daughter when she has her hand out, garbled though it may be. Thank you. Uh, Okay, so what is the dating of the book? Do we have a historical dating of the book? Because Paul was martyred, and so since it doesn't mention Paul, is that an indication that he may already have been dead? Not necessarily, but it's a good question, so hold on to it. I want to talk about the dating of the epistle later on. I want to go through a number of scenarios, including uh, the question that Andy uh, put up a little bit ago about the temple in relationship to this issue. Benji? Um, I started reading Owen on Hebrews when I heard that you were going to do this. Good for you. And it's a marvelous work. Uh, hard. He's talking about John Owen. John Owen. Massive commentary on the Epistle of the Hebrews. Four volumes. Thousands of pages. Go ahead, Pitts. Yeah. Um, good bedtime reading. Just <laughs> when I get to sleep. Um, but he... Uh, has a section where he deals with authorship. And he defends rather vigorously Pauline authorship. And when I started it, I kind of laughed saying, come on, just give me a break. But by the end, I have to admit, he really had me going, questioning uh, my reverent agnosticism, which I had hitherto uh, done. And I wanted to run by you the one argument he laid. And it had to do with Second Peter, of all places. In 2 Peter, the end of the letter, it mentions Paul. And it speaks of, uh, it's uh, 2 Peter uh, 3.15. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2 Peter 3.15 he's referring to. Dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Well, Paul has written you. Well, who is the you? Well, this letter doesn't have um, a specific uh, address, but this is the second letter he had written to this audience, which takes us back to the first letter. And the first letter is written to God's elect, the dispersed among Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, whom he takes as dispersed Hebrews. So if Paul has written to these group of Hebrews before, what letter was it that he wrote? Well, there's no other letter we have that is directed to Hebrews, and so the book of Hebrews is the only possible option here. Uh, No, an argument from silence, in my opinion, because I think the you, if it refers to Paul's previous letters, is referring to the Asia Minor letters of the Apostle, and Peter is aware of those, and consequently, I don't think we have to theorize an unidentified epistle of Paul to the Hebrews filling in that gap. Though I acknowledge you're being weakened by it, but uh, be strong in the Lord. (laughs) Real quick. Wait a minute, David, he's got... Um, He's got an addendum here. You know all about addendums and codicils and that type of thing. Go ahead. I just got done preaching through 2 Timothy a while ago. 
And the Sojourn motif is huge there. Running the race, finishing it, getting the crown, entering into the heavenly kingdom. Good. That's exactly what this author does here. And the way he ends the book by mentioning Timothy getting out of the prison, that is exactly the thing Paul was preaching to him in 2 Timothy about. So even if it's not Paul, this is a guy who must have known about that. That's a good observation. But the weakness in your observation is that the imagery of this epistle is not present in 2 Timothy. Uh, Consequently, that developed imagery which is here, I don't think the apostle could walk away from leaving some imprints of it elsewhere if he had been the author. David, you've been patient. Go ahead. I've heard that all the quotes from the Old Testament in Hebrews is actually quotes from the Septuagint. That is correct. Uh, Is disparate with what the apostle Paul did in his epistles. Well, there's, uh, Paul does use the Septuagint, but he doesn't use it exclusively. Uh, <clears throat> but the writer of the Hebrew seems to be heavily dependent on the Septuagint, at least in my own looking at the quotations, I can't make a case out for him using the Masoretic text primarily. And the reason he uses the Greek text, in my opinion, is because he's writing to a Greek-speaking audience, not a Hebrew-speaking audience, not a Hebrew-Hebrew-speaking audience. But that's that's my own in, uh, an, uh, brief answer to that. All right, any other uh, general questions at the point we are summarizing then? Oh, I'm sorry, Stephen? What's the problem with female authorship? What's the reason for insisting on authorship? Apostolic circle. It has the authorization of the apostolic circle. Now, is it ex hypothesis possible that a woman could have been authenticated by the apostolic circle? Yes. But then that would have suggested some kind of authoritative leadership or even office in the church, which I don't think is consistent with Paul's own comments. Uh, <clears throat> there is no claim for this in the early church literature either. Right. So. You know, this is an argument from silence with a lacuna and the whole history of the discussion of what's behind the epistle. It's invented later on by particular romanticists in the 19th century and now by feminists in the 2021st century. That's not to, be, to, to prejudice the case per se, but it's simply to explain, you know, what it is, how it comes up. It comes out of a cultural context. It does not really come out of a, uh, of a database context. You know, I can look at hardcore data. And the fact that the early church fathers aren't talking about any female authorship behind it, yeah, that's a big strike against that kind of thing. Scott. When you, the way you've set up Hebrews 2-3, um, do you think that this person had to have heard the message from someone who heard the Lord during his earthly ministry? In other words, does this exclude a convert of Paul, like Paulus, who's been suggested? I think it does. Uh, I think he's talking about first-generation authentication here in 2-3. And he himself is second generation, and he's making that point. And that is very important to what he's dealing with with these second generation Christians, what's happening in the community. So he's identifying himself in the sense that he's a second generation Christian as they are. And now he's going to work upon that ethos or that mindset. So, no, I don't think it's coming from a convert of one of the apostles. I think he's claiming that he, you know, he had access to one of the, uh, uh, those who heard the apostles directly. Uh, do you think that the apostle that he heard the word from 
had to have heard, in other words, does the apostle that he heard the word from have to be one of the original 11 disciples? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. I think he's going all the way back to the authentic source. All right, let's summarize then. First of all, we know from the grammar that our author is a male. We know that he's a second-generation Christian from chapter 2, verse 3, because he is a convert out of the apostolic circle. He has heard one of the apostles who has told him what the Lord said at the first. Third, he is highly educated. All right, now I haven't commented on this, and I want to expand at this point, because you're going to ask me, how do I know? How do I know he's highly educated from the style of his Greek? The Greek with which the writer to the Hebrews writes is the finest Greek in the New Testament. Paul does not approximate it. John does not approximate it. No other New Testament Greek writer approximates the high quality and level of uh, literary skill skill that the writer to the Hebrews expresses. Now that means, and, and this isn't this isn't a minority. This is a majority opinion of liberal and conservative alike. This is the best Greek in the whole New Testament Bible. You know, hands down. All right, that means that this writer was a man of refined and cultured and knowledgeable literary skill. And his primary language is Greek. That's his primary tongue. There's no way a person learning Greek could have expressed things the way this author does without having been a native, without having been born to the language. Now, because of the style, this very sophisticated Greek style, it is likely, though I can't be dogmatic, it is likely that he was trained in rhetoric or in Greek oratory. We came out of one of the schools of Greek rhetoric and oratory. That could be Athens, that could be Antioch, that could be Alexandria. That could be any other famous school of Greek instruction in the East, not likely in Rome itself. This man is a literary craftsman, an articulate literary craftsman. He is a genius with language, which is one of the advantages of being able to read the Greek text of this epistle. You begin to see all kinds of brilliant indications of his literary skill. They start jumping out at you when you start looking for them. Now, mentioning his vocabulary, he has a vocabulary which is packed full of hopoxes. Hapox legomenon, which is shortened for uh, conversational purposes to hapox. All right, now what does hapox legomenon mean? It means literally something said only once. Something said only once. Hapox, a very important word, important Greek word in this epistle. You get a good sense of the flavor of it in chapter 9, verse 27. 
where it says Christ died once and for all. That is the once and for all finality of the work of Christ. Well, here it is. We're not talking specifically about that. We're talking about the vocabulary of the epistle to the Hebrews with words that are only said once. One hundred and fifty of them. One hundred and fifty hopoxes in 13 chapters. That is a huge, huge variety, unparalleled in any other New Testament book. That much variety in vocabulary with words that he uses only one time. Brilliant literary author using a variety of vocabularies to enrich his discussion and his theology. Ranging afar to find words that will specifically express what he wants to communicate. 150 of them unique. Never uses them again. Never found anywhere else in the Greek New Testament. Finally, he is well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. There are more quotations from the Old Testament in the epistle to the Hebrews than in any other New Testament book. In 13 chapters, more quotations from the Old Testament than in any other New Testament book. He's not only a great Greek writer, he knows his Bible in Greek. And he throws in quotations from that Greek Old Testament over and over and over again. He is mining the scriptures. He's mining the Old Testament scriptures to make his theological point. So though he is unknown to us, the author is well known to his audience, to his readers. He is anonymous to us. But he has, he is an affectionate brother to them. You will notice how he addresses them. <coughs> Chapter 6, verse 9. He calls them beloved. Beloved. And he designates them in chapter 3, verses 1 and 12. Chapter 10, verse 19. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 22. He designates them brethren. These are terms of affection and familiarity. Now, in chapter 13, verses 8 to 19 and verses 22 to 24, he records his personal relationships with his readers. He especially details his work amongst them, his life amongst them. Notice in chapter 2, verse 3, which we have already read, he knows their conversion. He knows something about their life. Let's take a look at chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. And in the opening of that section, which is quite important to the character of the audience of this epistle, notice what he says. Remember the former days when after being enlightened. By enlightened, he means being converted. So once again, he's referring to the fact that he knows the story of their conversion, something he already has said in chapter 2, verse 3. But if we read through the rest of that section in 10, 32 to 34, notice what else he also knows. He knows that they endured suffering, verse 32. He knows that they were made a public spectacle with tribulation, verse 33. 
He knows that they, some of them have been in prison, verse 34. He knows that some of them have had their property seized and confiscated, also verse 34. They have been the object of oppression and uh, objection. He also knows in chapter 12, verse 4, that they have not been persecuted unto death. Not yet. So, he is aware of their sufferings and their persecution, but he is also aware that they have not paid the ultimate penalty of martyrdom. Some of them have been imprisoned. Some of them have lost their property. And some of them, chapter 10, verse 25, have stopped coming to church. They are forsaking the assembling of themselves. So this community has experienced a decline. And he also knows in chapter 12 that they have endured chastening or discipline from their heavenly father. (coughs) All right. There is a great deal in this epistle that tells us about the relationship between the author and his readers. You have to pay attention to these little tidbits because that's all they are. There is a narrative interface between the author and his readers. There are narrative tidbits that are thrown into his discussion, into the letter, which may be gathered from the internal data that we have examined, and there are more besides these. But none of these tidbits will successfully answer that age-old question exactly who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. He does not reveal his identity. Now, think with me for a moment about why he does not reveal his identity. Perhaps he does not identify himself, he does not give us his name because that would detract from the name he places before us on every page of his letter. The wonderful name of the Son of God, beloved of his Father, who with his Father is the sender of the Holy Spirit. All three persons the Godhead named in this epistle. That Son of the Father who is our Savior. He is our High Priest. He is the blessed mediator of the new covenant. He is the eschatological pilgrim. It is his name. It is his identity which abides. It is his name. It is his identity which is eternal. That is the name to remember. Let his name increase. Let my name remain unknown. It is enough for me. It is enough for me that you know his name. My name isn't important in comparison to his. And so his literary style and skill may also include a literary raison d'etre. I'm not telling you my name. 
because I don't want to get my name in the way of the name of my Savior. It's only a suggestion, but it has an attractive suggestion in the light of the humility of this author, who is very gracious in the way he deals with this troubled community of Christians. Yes, he is firm at some points, but he is very gracious in dealing with them and in attempting to bring them back to steal a phrase from another epistle, that faith once for all delivered unto the saints. Any questions about any of that? Uh, We will resume next week with a discussion of the date. So bring back your handouts for tonight. Have them in hand when you return next week. And uh, I may have some uh, additional ones uh, for uh, next week if we get a little further than we got tonight. Yes. Uh, Another highly educated Greek individual would be St. Luke. How does his Greek compare with this? It's a little rough in comparison. It's not to say that it's not good Greek, but it is not of the high literary style of the epistle to the Hebrews. Okay. Do we know anything more about Luke when he was converted, how how he became a Christian? Well, sometime in that uh, second missionary journey, probably, of Paul, uh, because that's when he changes from the uh, the, uh, he to the we, a pronoun uh, in the book of Acts. So it's likely, you know, there in that period. Of yeah, I, I would be thinking that the, the writer to the Hebrews was probably a companion of Luke or within the same community or something like that. Probably converted by the I, same I don't I don't think so, Robert. I don't I don't think he's in the Lucan circle. I think he's in the Timothy circle, as the end of the epistle indicates. And uh, I want to take a look at that a little more when we start talking about the date and the audience in detail. But uh, I, I don't think there's a cross-fertilization between, uh, the, between Luke and this writer. Yes, Andy? Do um, you think he was natively Jewish or Hebrew? <coughs> Yeah, he's Greek-speaking and Greek-trained. Now, is he Jewish diaspora? Um, Is he uh, Hebrew in background in terms of ethnic identity? Uh, I'm not sure. The older writers thought that he was a uh, a Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew. And um, I'm not as persuaded of that as they are because I think that uh, you could have a lot of knowledge of the Old Testament, which he does, without necessarily having been raised a Jew. But I will say that the preponderance of the argument or the preponderance of the evidence would lean in the direction of saying he has a Jewish background. <clears throat> and, uh, one more question Why do you say that you don't think he went to uh, one of the schools in Rome? Because of the quality of the Greek. It'd be very difficult to get this quality of Greek in a in a Latin school or in a Latin school which was teaching Greek. You would want to be in one of the halls of Athens or Alexandria or Antioch or some other Greek speaking native Greek speaking culture. Remember that the Romans who did learn Greek 
Some of them went to the East to learn it, particularly the emperors who were enamored of Greek culture. They actually went to the East in order to be a part of it, in order to immerse themselves in the language and in the culture. I'm not saying the Greek wasn't taught in Rome. Yes, it was, but it wouldn't have been taught necessarily by someone who was as skilled in Greek as this author is. I think it's outside of Rome, but I'll make my case for that uh, next week. Yes, Scott? On, on him not putting his name in the epistle, are you, are you kind of suggesting then that he is identifying with Christ as a pilgrim? He's not going to leave his name upon the earth? Something like that? That's a good thought. I like that. Uh, yes, uh, go on with that, Scott. I, I, I think that's a, a very good uh, extension of my observation, so thank you for it. An anonymous pilgrim. Yes, go ahead, Benji. I don't know if you mentioned this, but uh, it seemed like you mentioned this in class, but I don't know if you said it tonight, but you explained the meaning of the Hebrew word for Hebrew. But I don't, I don't know if you said that tonight that, well, in terms of its origin. I, I was doing it implicitly, if not explicitly. I, I was making the case for the word Hebrew means sojourner and pilgrim, which is the confession of Abraham himself in Genesis 23 and is one of the etymological interpretations of its first appearance in Genesis 14. But I, I, I didn't want to get into that so much as try to make the case out of the epistle itself, which I think is clearly majoring in the motif. Yes, Cheryl? Okay, if this particular author, did he write any, do you think he wrote any other epistles? Nothing that survives. So there's no way to answer that question definitively because nothing has survived. This is the only thing that has survived from his hand that we're aware of. In one sense, you can say it's better than anything else because it's a it's a perfect expression of his own understanding of Old and New Testament biblical theology. Irritating. <laughs> <laughs> well, at journey's end, you will know, because it is, of course, one of those questions you can ask, and you will meet him in glory. Yes, he is. Keep your heart on the content, not on my name. Thank you very much. Lord willing, see you next week.